you are listening to the Echo Church Podcast, and we are on a mission of rescue and restoration into a vibrant and fulfilled life. Jesus wept means a lot to me in my life because here Jesus' friend Lazarus died, and Jesus knew what the whole picture was. He knew it's going to work out to God's glory, to his glory. He knows it. Yet, he took the time, he grieved at what he saw and the loss and the pain, even though he's well-equipped to do all the actions needed. And that speaks to me how we as believers, grieving together isn't weakness, it's actually powerful. Thank you for joining us on this week's Echo Church podcast. Today, you'll hear from Pastor Andy Cass and Dr. Ron Ferguson, a sociologist working here in Minnesota. My name is Ron Ferguson. I am originally from the United States Virgin Islands. I grew up in the Caribbean most of my childhood and and teenage adolescent life. And through a lot of different circumstances, found myself in the Midwest where I went to college, university, got my bachelor's degree, got my master's degree, and got my PhD, all while I was in the great state of North Dakota. Met my wife there, and during that season of my wife and I finding a place to live and work, my mom died, and I took in my siblings and uh, raised them and lived most, uh, and since then I've been working as a professor at various institutions. One of those happened to be Luther College, a great school, really enjoyed my time there, and I was able to work at, excuse me, live in Rochester, Minnesota, where I attended a church where Andy was a pastor there, and we got to know each other and just hit it, hit it off right away. really appreciate Andy and, and his heart for people. And uh, so since then, I have moved on. My wife and I have moved to other opportunities. I'm a professor, still a sociology professor at Ridgewater College in Minnesota. And here we are. I mean, those are the sort of basic points of my world. I'm still angry that you moved, just for the record. (laughs) Yeah, it was a hard move in the sense that we were saying, you know, essentially no to some great relationships and friends. But like anything with choices, you're saying yes to others. And it was a hard move, but I don't find it zero sum because I get to be able to talk with people like you on these new fangled technologies. So... Yeah, you know, I'm I'm kind of done talking to people in Rochester on Zoom, so I I get like I'm like no, I'm not going to do any extra Zoom meetings, but yeah, I am I'm excited that the bigger church, the big C church, these conversations really really add value and give us the opportunity where we don't have to travel a bunch of hours to to sit there and have a conversation, but yet see each other's face and hear he's hear each other's voice. So, but really I want to talk a little bit about Jesus entering into the temple as he enters Jerusalem and he flips tables and he drives the money changers out. And it specifically mentions kind of standing in the way of those that were selling doves or pigeons, which the way in my understanding of being a theologian, being someone that studies scripture, is that was Jesus's way to protest really against the marginalized, those people that are being forgotten and being taken advantage, and also the foreigner. So the foreigner would be the right, the money exchange. The pigeons would be those that have very little and that they would have to purchase a pigeon for sacrifice. They're purchasing a pigeon because they can't afford anything else. And so all those things were upcharged in the first century or whenever you know, Jesus was on the earth. And so Jesus walks in and he, man, he, he makes a statement. 
And so that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit. And we could talk about the reference to Jesus, but I guess what I'm more a little bit more interested in hearing about currently is like, okay, we're all watching the same thing. So my feeling was um, one of really deep sadness and anger. And I appreciate what you said about what we with anger. I, I don't think anger and indignation is sinful in and of itself. Obviously, it's how do we handle and channel that frustration and anger in a way that, you know, reveals God's justice and mercy. How do we do that in a way that can lead to real change versus just, you know, doing it in a way that perpetuates more violence, you know, and I really appreciate what Martin Luther King said regarding meeting hate with love and how do we extinguish the right. darkness. Talk to me a little bit about the MLK statement there that you just said. What does that mean? The statement means to me is we, we live in a world where I think a lot of hate abounds. Racism and other isms certainly exist in our society where people are othered. People are, their humanity is taken away in so many different ways. You know, the humanity of George Floyd. To have a film for 10 minutes filmed where there's not even a concern, like, where does this go? speaks volumes to me about the contempt that one can have for another human being. And where that situation happens, that kind of hate happens, what should be our response? Well, we, we should be angry. We should be frustrated. And how do we meet the rage and contempt that was met towards people? We need to look at how do we, in love, in care and concern for humanity, right, work with each other. And I think in some ways it speaks well to like allies who can, you know, work together to accompany others to see that, you know, if we want to change what happens, if we don't want to see any more of these videos, what we need to do is, is as believers, find the humanity in others and see how much it is wrapped up in ourselves. Can I give you a quote? This really means a lot to me in this season. And it's from an indigenous woman. You might have heard it. Her name is Lila Watson. And it speaks to me how I think about this in love. If you come to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you've come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. And I think that meeting hate is to recognize that when we see videos like this, all of humanity's liberation is at stake. And having that care and compassion to, to speak up and to speak out and to mobilize together towards change is what we need to do. I tell my students I straddle two fences on this. I uh, both talk about this as a sociologist, but also as a, as a person of color, as a Christian, I see that the chain needs to be comfortable in within and outside. You know, I don't think I've ever shared this story publicly. I shared it with a few people. But when I was young, my first incident with law enforcement was a pretty bad one when I was in the islands getting off the bus. And I was with a friend of mine who happened to be white. The island is actually pretty diverse peoples. And the police stopped me. And they asked me what I was doing. And I said, well, I went to a movie with my friend and now I'm going home. They said, no, I'm sure that wasn't the case. You clearly are probably selling drugs to a tourist. And I said, no, I'm not. And there was some law enforcement officers who saw me and quoted me 
as a drug dealer, was just going to the movies like I did every other week. And as a teenager, one of the things that I would do is I would carry my Bible with, I had a little pocket Bible, and I would normally carry it with me because it was a sense of comfort for me, especially when I would go home late at night. And the police wanted to see if I had drugs on me. And they said, well, do you have any drugs on you? I was like, obviously no. And they wanted to search me. And I went to go show them what I had in my pocket. I said, I have this buy, and before I could pull it out of my pocket, I got hit over the head really hard. I went to fall, my little pocket Bible I had went flying, and they said, you know what we can do to you. And they had threatened more violence against me, and I found myself crying and begging for my life because I didn't know in the middle of the night whether or not that I would see tomorrow. And what I did was, and I had no training or coaching, I said, I live down the street, here's my parent, here's, my, here's where I go to church. I named people to hopefully humanize myself enough that they would know that, that I was a person, that I had relationships. And I instinctively did it. It wasn't artful. It was begging and pleading and screaming for my life. And uh, I was angry in that moment. And I was frustrated in that situation, feeling so helpless. And in my life, in the anger, and that moment still lives today as plainly as it did then. Over the years, my role, I went on to say, I want to see change. And I went on to uh, most of my work is I work with law enforcement today. I mean, I, I work with training. Thousands of students in my career I've worked with to go on to get their degree in criminal justice and law enforcement. And a lot of my feeling is I want to see changes in our system. And if I can be part of that, I need to not only care about what happened to me, but what happens to so often so many different people. It's a hard story to tell, and I didn't plan on sharing it, but thanks for giving me the opportunity. Holy cow, Ron. Every black man that I've spoken to in the last couple years about this topic has told me about a story just like yours. And uh, I'm sad. I really am, man. You've made me Really, I mean, maybe not you, but the situation and, and this repetitive story that we're hearing just breaks my heart. I can't say I've ever felt the way that you've felt. I've never experienced something like that. The only closest thing I can get to, Ron, is as a skater. <laughs> there was some scenarios that I put myself in, and I was in some scary scenarios, potentially with law enforcement or other people, where I was misjudged or my character was attacked. And I can tell you every time I've ever been attacked, my character was attacked by anybody, you know, any scenario, friend, a foe, authority figure, teacher, a mentor, it crushed my heart. And so like the story you just shared, man, I it's got to change, man. Yeah. It really yeah. does. And at the same time, what you just said is just like, what I think I just heard you say is some of that anger you experienced that moment, you have channeled into what you do today. And man, I want to applaud you because we need more people like you. 
Like we simply just need more people like you that say, hey, yeah, I have been dealt injustice because of the color of my skin or who I'm hanging out with or who I, how I dress or whatever it is, the color of my skin. Man, I want to change that. And, you know, knowing you personally being a friend, I've seen you do that. I, I believe if I remember correctly, you were on the diversity council in Rochester and it wasn't as a hot topic, I guess, you know, when you were there, but man, that's when it counts when it's not a hot topic. And that's the biggest thing I'm concerned about right now is that there is some, there's a lot of emotion behind it. And you as a sociologist, you know this, what happens after all the emotion leaves, after the hype and the news and the the media leaves, what happens from here? In fact, I was so angry last Tuesday about that, that I felt like so many people were like chiming in and saying, you know, whatever, making whatever statement they want to make. But my heart hurt because I feel like when the emotions go, what happens next? And I want to be a part of the solution, not just a part of the emotion. Yeah. And that's where the work gets done, right? There, There is a season that the emotion needs to come out. You know, I I think a lot about what you said to me. I, I appreciate the time when my friends acknowledge just how bad it was and grieve with me. I felt very alone. The times that law enforcement have pulled me over and asked me what gang I'm in or or pulled me over and I was fearful for my life, I felt very alone. Or even other times I've been discriminated against, you know, like car dealerships, can you really afford this? I mean, all the microaggressions that I've gone through, I feel alone. But when there is a season where people grieve with me, it comforts me in a sense that I'm not by myself, that people are with me. They stand together. They see that my human, my lib, their liberty is wrapped up in mine. If they, Ron's not okay, we're not okay. As you know, the shortest verse in the Bible that's easy to memorize, Jesus wept, means a lot to me in my life because here Jesus's friend Lazarus died and Jesus knew what the whole picture was. He knew it's going to work out to God's glory. He, to his glory. He knows it. Yet, he took the time, he grieved at what he saw and the loss and the pain, even though he's well-equipped to do all the actions needed. And that speaks to me how we as believers, grieving together isn't weakness. It's actually powerful. I'm a sociologist, but tears aren't, they're not socially constructed. They're, we, we have those for a reason, right? Those aren't designed by man. Like We have the capacity to filter through these feelings in very visceral ways, and, and we need to do that. And so I think the balance of grieving together is needed, but there is then a season that we need to then channel that grief into action, right? And how do we, how do we get to the action? You know, and one of the things that my, I've done, and, and, I'll, and I'll just keep it short here, is that when you say, well, Ron, well, how do you not just get angry and Take your anger, and really, a lot of times what happened is it, I would self-destruct. It wouldn't be like I would take my anger and go hurt others. It would probably be more likely that it would have destroyed me, and it almost did. But what I have chosen to do, and, and I give a lot of credit to my faith, is that God changed my life and my heart. And, you know, recognizing who the other is in my life, other people, right? Who's my neighbor, the Samaritan? Who is the Samaritan in our lives? And who's the other? And I've really decided to find ways to see, you know, to me, race is a social construction. It really is. And unfortunately, race is used in, in, in power, in history, and in society. But under these constructions are other human beings. And I really want to 
know and stand beside those who are oppressed, those that are hurting, those that are lonely, and walk beside them. You know, and I do feel this sense of shared humanity is needed. I really like what uh, both Desmond Tutu, Bishop Desmond Tutu, and Nelson Mandela talk about the Ubuntu principle. I follow it in my own life, and it's probably unfamiliar to you, to some of the listeners, but it really comes down to this. It's a phrase in South Africa because I am because you are, right? And it was a greeting you gave to someone outside of your village. When they showed up as an outsider to the village, they're visiting you. You had this expression of Ubuntu that says, I am because of you are. And it's another way of saying what I said earlier, that our, my life and, and who I am is only made good because you're okay. I'm okay because you're okay. And that is not a principle. It's not a platitude. It's in action. Notice that it was said to the foreigner coming into the community and it was in practice of Ubuntu, not, not just the saying that you said. And I asked, how do I treat the other in my life, right? And I want to really work. It's a process, right? I haven't mastered it, but it's something I work towards quite often. Listening has to be a choice. It never happens organically. I don't know. I, I have to choose to listen. If I don't actually make the point, I, I taught research methods for years and Interviewing is probably the hardest thing that anyone can do because you do have in your own mind, dialogue is organic and I, I have what I want to say and you have and, and there's this very interesting dialectic that goes on. But interviewing or, or, or let's just say for practical purposes, listening is not like that at all. You really are just stopping and saying, I'm ready to receive whatever. And it can be very difficult to do. It's, it's hard for me to do. Yeah, when you were saying the difficulty of, of listening I think you have to be okay with pausing. And I think in today's society, and not many of us are very comfortable with it, that there is this uncomfortable pause. If you truly are listening, then then maybe after someone speaks and says something, there should be a slight pause. If someone jumps in right away, you can just assume that, man, they, they went to that thought. You've got such a gift. You've got so much, so much to offer this world. You have this gift of speaking my language. I know you, you, you've grown up in a different context and a different city. You're not in Minnesota, right? Primarily. And uh, for you to come in and just help me understand it. I've gotten a good example. A good example is uh, for years, I've brought my um, taxes in to get, <laughs> to get worked on and just uh, have some person help me. And for years, I sat in this person's office and they speak back to me and I got, I'm not like, I can typically understand about everything, you know, most things I should say, but man, he had this gift of making sure that I wouldn't understand anything. <laughs> so I just want to encourage you, Rob, man, you keep speaking. I know you're listening. I appreciate that. Thank you. And my, my hope is that, like I said, through all this, that I can find others that want to share and, and raise other voices like you're doing. And I'm really thankful you're doing that because... There's many voices from the margins that need to be heard. And, and, and this, there is an opportunity, I think, in a season where people are listening. Like right now, people actually are listening and they're ready to hear it. And I worry if, if, if we don't speak up, I mean, the alternative, someone will. You had mentioned some things about dehumanizing people. Why do we do that? Why do we do that as human? 
Why do, why do I personally do that? Why do you do that? When we don't like what we see, someone wrongs us, or politically they're on the other side, why do we go right there? I mean, that's my observation, we go there. And that's where we go there first. So why do we do that? Unfortunately, the responses that people ultimately have about the other are never rational. People don't give rational, logical responses to dealing with others that are different than themselves. Normally, people go to finding ways that can substantiate or justify their own biases and perspective. It's amazing how much, let's call it prejudice or, or bias, how much of that is perpetuated by things that are completely ridiculous. You know, people think prejudgment is about being ignorant. I, I think prejudgment is more about ignorance, but resistance to anything else that would challenge their points of view. And so as one way to easily sort of sustain a point of view is to take the humanity away from others, right? So I'll give you an example. Throughout the history of uh, the United States, African-Americans have been dehumanized in public policy, in literature, in art, meaning this group of human beings that were 400 plus years ago brought against their will to a new space was treated as an other in a lot of ways in this to substantiate slavery, civic apartheid, all these kind of things that this othering, meaning, and when I say othering, I'm talking about as, as a human, taking their humanity away was a way to substantiate what was going on. See, when slavery, historic slavery was where it was, you know, the public policy was that there was a lot of humanity, right? We, we know this, that, that there was a notion, you know, the Dred Scott case, which people are, might be familiar with, a case of a, a slave whose quote-unquote master had, had died, went to, wanted freedom because, hey, I don't have an owner. But the, our courts suggested not being, being property, not fully human, you don't have that right. And that was codified in our policies and laws. I don't know if you've heard of the caricature of the Piccaninny, which is how black children were drawn in the 19th century and earlier, were as animals. And black children seen as animals. Children are so lovable and so human. But if you can draw humans as, as little animals, which the Piccaninny caricature was, this was visual caricature of a, of a non-human then it justifies the way people are treated. In the Bible, how we're, when it talks about calling people names and why that's so powerful, we don't do that because we reduce, in many ways, calling someone an idiot, for example, it takes away their humanity, right? Because that is a brother, a sister, a, mo a son, a daughter who has a humanity, who has worth, who has ideas. See, if we do that, if we start taking the humanity into question, everything else crumbles. We can't yeah. justify slavery. We can't justify vilifying people of different ideas, perspectives, and beliefs. It all starts to crumble if we have to take in, this is a human being. I mean, and I'll just leave it at this. I mean, it even happens when people have road rage. We, we tend to, you're keeping me from my destination, and you know what we do about it, right? So it's fascinating how we tend to do that all the time. Reminds me of the scripture where it says, do not call your brother a fool. But I believe that Greek word is raka. And 
we could go somewhere there real quick, but the, the idea is that Raqqa is this is this starting point of yes, of as you were speaking of dehumanizing. It's to to take away the image of God. Yeah. And saying, no, you don't have the image. Uh, you're something else. Just be patient with me on this one. Last week, I admitted that I've said some things that I'm not proud of in the past. And uh, the way I said it is, hey, because I grew up in this environment, and, and I, as I was thinking about even today, that's probably my way of trying to justify my actions. But as a young man, I've said some jokes, and uh, I, t- I was talking to Abe Kamara about this this week. Uh, do you remember Abe? I do. Yep. And growing up in Wisconsin, and I've said some racial things that I'm not proud of. And what I'm trying to do is look at my brothers and my friends like you, Ron, and just apologize again and say, forgive me for really saying what I said. I view it as, in some respect, not knowing what I didn't know. Falling into the trap of environmental influence. Again, I'm not, I take full blame, but I think if we're not careful, it's easy to be sucked in to these echo chambers, right? And uh, play on word a little bit there with echo church, right? And that's where it gets, I think gets really scary. And so if everybody else is doing this raka, you're an idiot because you don't think the way I think, you know, it's easy from moving from words and then turn it into what people look like and the color of their skin. And then all of a sudden you talk about social constructs. Yeah, it's so easy to divide. It's so easy to, to, to not want to live by them or the other or create this community of same people. So, wow, what you brought some, again, brought a, a lot of things to, to my attention. Have you ever said anything about someone of a different race, ethnicity, social construct, you know, construct? Because I guess what I'm looking for in, in, in this moment is, are you human? Do we all deal with this? Or are we all going to pretend like we never did? Does that make sense? It does. And the answer to the question, of, of course. I mean, we all have said things that, you know, we're not proud of. I mean, I've said things in my life about all kinds of groups that in the moment I didn't know what I didn't know, as you said, and only after education, growth, maturity, I was able to see the error of my ways. And like you, needing to speak out and say, forgive me, you know, I apologize to, obviously, when I'm praying to to God, I, I've said, Lord, I repent of the, the spirit of hatefulness that I've had, but also then needing to follow through with new actions. You know, I was thinking about this today, and if I don't mind sharing it with you, I talk about a conversation a lot about calling people out, like calling out racism, sexism, all, you know, calling out inequality as we see it in our society. We need to do that. We need to say, you did this. So we need to, people need to be individually called out at times and, and, and say, you, what you said is wrong. What you did is inappropriate. And Everybody in the moment will say, well, I'm not a racist. I'm not this. I'm, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not those things. And, and or they get to a place where they say, you know, I'm no longer going to be that way. We need to call up and call in. And what I mean by that is as we get to a place, so I call out your racist behavior. 
I need to call you in to, to something different. And here's where it gets to. You could say, I'm not a racist. I don't want you to just say that. I want you to say, I am an anti-racist. What kind of, what am I going to call you into? What kind of behaviors and practices are actually leading to change? Not just as like, well, I'm not a racist. I'm not doing those things. But what are you doing then? What does anti-racism look like? It's lifting up marginalized voices. That's what it is. Like voices that have been silenced or have been, they're just so discouraged and defeated because I've been there. Someone even inviting me onto a video to say, Ron, share your story. That elevates voices that may have not been, you know, saying I'm going to make sure that I'm part of hiring people uh, that we see the diversity in our, in our businesses, in our workplaces, in our congregations, that we see the same diversity in our staff and leadership across the country. And that is anti-racist. That's saying I'm making positive changes. Yeah, I did things that are inappropriate, but then what are, what do I do with that? Right. Do I be, like we said earlier, I can stay in that grief and anger because we, we need that. We're emotional. And I need to, someone hurts my children, I gotta be there, but then I gotta move to, how do I make sure this never happens again? I don't wanna watch another video like we watched the last week. I never wanna see that again. You know, I get the choir, meaning I got a lot of allies and friends, we're ready to do the work, but we actually do need everybody else. We need folks that are across the political spectrum to see that their humanity is wrapped up in mine, that we need to do this together. And how do we do this? It's not just saying we aren't going to do the things that are in the time inappropriate, but it's what are the things we're doing to then embrace those around us and call them brother, call them sister. And that's the calling in and calling up that I hope to do with my friends, my neighbors, and my community. Amen. Amen. Dude, you're just preaching right there, man. Some of the best drivers of humanity, best and you know, you can play the word on the word the way you want to, I guess. But some of the, the biggest drivers, I should say, is of humanity is fear and anger. And yeah, the question is how can we channel those into the right direction? Protesting of all kinds, how we react. There's all kinds of lanes to say this is wrong and to move to action, but it, it's never safe. I think that I get practical movement, and but there will be times in every listener's life that's listening to us right now that it will be your time to speak up and your time to do something, and often it will be met with opposition. Yep. You know, they told Dr. King, they begged him, please, Dr. King, just preach your sermon in Ebenezer Baptist Church. He was going to a peaceful march. He said, no, 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 don't go to Birmingham. Just, just preach your sermon. He's Easter sermon coming up. They, they begged him. He said, I got to go. He had to go to Birmingham. And, and you know what? He knew that going to Birmingham was not going to be good. Like they weren't going to welcome him and have, he knew that even his presence would be met with opposition and he wasn't wrong. I mean, that's where he was incarcerated among the many times he was jailed. But it reminds me that when pursuing the humanity of all, we are going to be met with resistance and it's not always safe. And at least in our earthly context, in the natural, it may cost you something. It may cost you relationships. I know people that that's happened where they've said, even just speaking up, that they've said, I can't, you know, people have lost relationships because of it. I'll just leave it at that. But it, it, it's something that 
we need to know moving into this kind of advocacy work, supporting each other, that it's it's not it's not always like safe, if you will. It's, it takes courage. Courage is a word that we throw around, but it really does take courage knowing that to go to our Birmingham, so to speak. My daughters were arguing in their room. They're arguing over this um, piece of art that we've purchased for all three of our girls. Our youngest one was kind of an innocent bystander, wasn't really participating cognitively, is not at, at an age where she can understand what's going on being that she's three. But the other two were arguing over this word warrior. We purchased this frame that says Zakiah is a warrior. And in Zakiah's mind, for her to be called a warrior means that someone else isn't. And I'm emotional about it because I think that's the cultural the cultural lie of this day is that if I'm for something, that I must be against something. And as a pastor, I am so cautious in how I say things because I know there is a group of people or humanity, like I said, most people think that if I say Black Lives Matter, then I must mean that blue lives matter that don't matter. If I say all lives matter, that means I don't believe black lives matter or blue lives. You know, you get how that means. I was so angry at my daughters last night. And it obviously was way more than their just their discussion. Ron, I wish you were in the room because you would have been laughing at me and slightly embarrassed to know me. Uh, but I was like, I was like, no, like, because Zakaya says she's a warrior on this wall doesn't mean you aren't Zion. And just because, Zion, we declare your, your sunshine and you're full of life doesn't mean Zakiah isn't full of life. And if I could say anything to this culture today, is just because we say Black Lives Matter does not say someone else's life doesn't matter. And I think that the, the trick is this, is we, because we want to dehumanize a people or a group of people with with a purpose, right, or a direction, what we want to do is set them into a political bias and we forget that they're people. Bless their hearts and how they see things, but in some ways it does echo the sentiments of our society, right? The notion of a zero sum, right? So for me to win means someone's got to lose. And that zero sum mentality is out there in our politicized society, in the various ideologies that are out there. And I think along a very different lane, I think that with positive change, rising tides raises all ships is my mentality. And how do I see if the only way that all lives can matter is if black lives matter. And the notion that if we're able to reach out and support those of us that have been disproportionately harmed in some way, of any group, right, that has been, it really benefits me. Again, I'm going to go back to my Ubuntu sort of philosophy of action that the only way that I'm okay is that you're okay. Because if you're not okay, I can't, I can't move on, right? And really recognizing that if we have that community mindset, that the only way that I'm okay is if you're okay, then it isn't the zero sum at all. The fact of the matter is, the social changes in our society and the removal of systematic racism benefits everyone, right? And so to see that instead of, well, it's a, you know, black thing or a white thing. And, and it's, if, 
if black people benefit, well, their group, as if there's some monolithic black group that's going to benefit, it benefits all people that I can feel safe when I'm pulled over. It benefits all people when individuals are treated equitably in their workspaces and feel safe in their workspaces. And so I, I always like to think about the change that we're seeking ultimately benefits you and our society to come. And, and I get it what you're saying with regard to there is a sense to me of um, staying on message with that because people will, I call it what about isms. You probably, well, black, black, well, what about this group? And what about that group? And what about, what about, what about? While there are many different societal strifes and issues, to stay on message right now is to remember the videotape and what happened in these incidents of, you know, um, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey of um, George Floyd, so on and so on and so on and so on. What's been happening in our society? Why is it happening? What are the common denominators? And, and keeping that on message is where we need to be because there are other issues out there. But when we say Black Lives Matter, it's focusing on the message that that has not been the case in our society. And as such, if we see the humanity in me and other black and brown bodies, if we see the humanity and worth, am I not a brother? If you don't see, if you see that, then you recognize it, then you're not okay either. And I think that's where, and with this social activism for change, it rises, every, everyone benefits. When COVID-19 came, Ron, I felt like the Lord had presented and directed me to 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and they turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal their land. I began to feel like the Lord was calling us to humble ourselves. But then I, as we're talking in this conversation, and I keep hearing kind of that theme of human, you know, humanizing people once again. I mean, isn't that the message that the Lord says, if my people, <laughs> maybe we need to pause on that word, my people, and begin to understand that in God's kingdom, every color is represented equally, that, that God loves all people. And yes, he, he, as Jesus did when he walked into the temple, and he fought for those that were being marginalized and ripped off. I felt like the Lord had directed me to the scripture and the, as Jesus was saying that when a one demon is casted out or a demon is casted out, he's sent it into, he's sent into a dry place and then that house is cleaned. And if that house isn't filled with what needs to be filled, then what happens is that demon will return to that home, but then bring seven other demons. This is what I feel like is happening right now in this society. When COVID came, like it was the gods at war, that God began to clean house for all of us, stripping away all those things that we hold on to, right? For our own security, right? For, for uh, materialism. I think sports is a, a major, major god or religion in, you know, in, st in the States, right? All that was taken overnight. I believe that those demons were sent in, and 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 again, I you don't, I don't talk quite a bit like demons, you know, a lot of times, but hear the message. I feel when we saw George Floyd come, 
the demon of unhealthy anger is knocking in the door. And if we don't, as you have presented, channel anger correctly, then our society from this moment will not get better. It will actually get worse. And that's my biggest fear. And that's why I want to have these conversations with you, with other people with different perspective and experiences of, you know, as they've grown up and just say, hey, Lord, let's bind together. Let's humble ourselves. Let's seek your face and let's be that instrument of of making a difference around us. I think we're at a crossroads, right? We have an opportunity to create real systemic change. People are listening. We also have the unfortunate alternative where it leads to chaos. It leads to infighting. We lose the message of what we're trying to achieve. And again, it maybe just perpetuates greater incidences of violence. And and, and I don't think anybody wants that. You know, I think it's, and if you're asking me as a believer from a spiritual sense, I think that recognizing that the diversity that is in our world is was no accident. It was created by God. It was not, well, it just happened to be that. No, in God's perfect plan, he made the diversity that exists. And if you really think about God's creations, right, we see the diversity around us. We say, oh, look at nature and look at all the, you know, to see that God in it, but also look at the brothers and sisters around you that don't look anything like you. And that is also part of the beauty and diversity that God's created and recognition of his greatness. Like I think about it in terms of that. And I love it. I think about diversity in so many different ways. Like when I think about even going to church, there are people that aren't like me. They don't look like me. I want to go to a church where it is so diverse. You know, I think uh, King Martin Luther King sort of joked about that he knew when the most segregated or separated time of America was on Sunday mornings. And I think about the opportunity for us to grow in community together on those Sunday mornings. And, And so recognizing this diversity we have of people, that's created by God which brings it back to the humanity piece, recognizing the opportunity we have with whatever the season is where we are right now, there's an opportunity where people are listening and we can take that and channel it, channel our passions because I'm a passionate person. And so take that heart issue, connect it with the head of saying, what are we going to do and recognize First thing, it isn't up to me or people of color to change this thing. It isn't up to one group to change this thing. It's up to all of us partnering together. And once we know we all need to be part of it and the church needs to be involved, our civic leaders need to be involved and our allies across the board need to be involved, that's where the true change will happen. And that's where it gets a little bit more. So it isn't this, well, I have my idea, your idea, zero sum all over again. So that, that's what I'm striving for, making the, that, those connections moving forward. I'm so glad the message that you say it's all up to, it's up to us, but us is created by individuals and individuals that see their part. And like I said, I've tried to position myself to, to listen, to be quick to listen, slow to speak. And then remain silent long enough to truly hear what is being said. And now I'm feeling this place where, yeah, what, what part am I supposed to play? And so I, I'm, I'm thankful for you, your friendship. Thank you that you have grace for me and I with you. And even though 
you know, I, I, you know, I have a certain personality type, Ron, I don't know if you've talked to any, the Enneagram too much, but, or if you know much about it, but I have a certain personality where may I can say things and I may say it in a certain way that I don't really necessarily mean what I'm saying, but it comes off as if I'm saying something and it hurts the other person. And I'm just striving to be that person of grace, the person of, of, of leaning on God's truth in that same time. But when Ron says something that pricks my heart, which by the way, you said about seven of those, you know, in this conversation that I'm not taking it as a negative, but I'm assuming the positive that you're saying it out of love, you're saying it out of care, out of your experience. And if I listen long enough, man, that it could make our world better together. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate you inviting me on this to, as a forum to share and to grieve together, but then yep. probably more importantly, to hope together. Yep. We have to have hope. I'm an optimist, I, not because of any sort of personality. It's, I have to be. To do the work that we need to do, we have to see the possibility for positive change. I'm just so glad that our hearts are united there and mind, and uh, let's keep doing the good work together. But Ron, can you do this? Can you just pray for, for Echo Church to be that, that diverse, God-fearing, graceful, yet set in tr- God's Word and God's truth, and truly not just play in church, but be in the church in Rochester? Would you do that for us? I'd be honored to. Lord, I just thank you for, first and foremost, the time that I get to spend with my brother and and those listening in. Talk about these issues that are besetting our society. And I want to just pray, Lord, that you take this message and uh, whatever you do with it that create positive changes, channel our energy. Also pray, Lord, specifically for Pastor Andy and the Echo Church staff and the Echo Church body, that, Lord, that you, you bless them provide, Lord, your wisdom for them to how to work together in community to create positive change, to uplift your name, to help those that are marginalized, that are hurting, those that may be the least of these in some cases, that that the Echo Church can be your hands and feet to realize your will, Lord. I pray for the church as it grows in its body that its diversity flows through there, Lord. Your diversity you've divinely created in the church, Lord, that it be, it is something that is your will, Lord, that all nations, all peoples, Lord, are, are singing glory to your name and your holiness, Lord. I just pray that for this church to, to be that and that it does indeed echo to other churches and other communities, Lord. And I just pray that and thank you for that in your mighty name, Lord, amen. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. If you have any questions or prayer requests, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hey at wearetheecho.church. This episode was produced and mixed by Just Hit Publish Productions. 